Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories podcast, season two, episode 17. I'm Nick Carparelli, the executive director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by former Louisville wide receiver, Dion Branch, Lending Tree Bowl president, Jerry Silverstein, and the co-founder and CEO of Open Doors, Blake Lawrence. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. Our first guest played wide receiver for the Louisville Cardinals for two seasons in 2000 and 2001. He was drafted in the second round of the 2002 NFL draft by the New England Patriots and went on to play 11 seasons in the league. He's a two-time Super Bowl champion and MVP of Super Bowl 39. Please welcome to the show former Louisville wide receiver and the winning head coach of this year's Fenway Bowl, Dion Branch. Dion, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you all for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you returned to Louisville last January as Director of Player Development. Less than a year later, you're named interim head coach, and on Saturday, led the Cardinals to a victory over Cincinnati in the inaugural Wasabi Fenway Bowl. What was that experience like for you? It was crazy. Uh, Right away, the phone call about um, being introduced as that and asked, will I take on this role, um, given the circumstances in which with Coach Satterfield and and a couple of the staff members taking the job over at Cincinnati, um, it was mind boggling. It was a humbling experience. It was, it, it was, it was everything all in one. I think just me personally, like you said, getting, being hired January the 18th as a player development and then transcending what 11 months later, uh, being named as the interim head coach. Um, trust me, man, it, it was a, it was an honor, you know, and I, and I said this in, 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 in our press conference, you know, I think the biggest thing is that all former players would love to come back and coach for their alma mater. But to be named as the interim head coach, I know is the interim is on it. But just like my mom said, son, it doesn't matter what it is. You can be the interim head coach for 30 minutes. This is a beautiful thing. It, it, it's, a, it's a miracle. It's a blessing uh, for me personally to, to attend this university and now also have the opportunity to lead 120 young men and have a phenomenal staff of um 10 to 15 QCs, GAs, and actual full-time coaches that stayed back. It was an honor. Now you're 1-0 as a head coach. Pretty good. <laughs> that's, <laughs> a be- that's, the most, that's the most important part, just getting the victory. Getting you had the a lot, victory of, was a lot of great experiences in your career, and I'm sure you learned a lot from different coaches you played for and playing in the league and all that. What, what, were, what were you able to take from your experiences and pass on to your team as you prepared them for the bowl game? Oh, I think the last thing that was taught to me as far as by Coach Belichick, in which uh, I, I want to actually commend all my coaches, from my Little League coaches to my high school coaches, um, to my junior college coaches, to my the University of Louisville, John L. Smith, um, uh, my coaches in Seattle, Coach Holmgren, Coach uh, Mora, Coach, um, uh, Coach Carroll. But the most important thing, Coach Belichick, who I pretty much lean on, for everything. This guy taught myself along with all my teammates a lot of things. But one of the most important things was like being accountable to yourself and to your teammates. And I think that one statement is something that I took heed to and I delivered that message the the prior, uh, the past two weeks to all the players. You know, as far as being accountable right now to yourself and to your teammates and knowing exactly what we're doing and what we're chasing and what's our why factor. Like, why are we doing this? Understanding that there's a lot of different things that's going on around us right now. And the most important, most important part for yourself uh, is to know why you're doing it and also being accountable to yourself and to your teammates. Yeah, those are good, good thoughts there. 
So, so tell us, what was it like in the locker room after the game? I'm sure that moment is, is <laughs> we'll never forget. Hey, trust me, Cap. I was, uh, my, my, my brain was flying in so many different directions. Um, even before the victory, just the whirlwind that myself and all these players and all the coaches that were what we were on. Uh, this part of the game, this part of the business, you get it, you understand. But it, you would never fully grasp it until you actually engulfed in it. And, and by this happening, not only did I have coaches leaving daily, there was players that was questioning why they were here and players that was questioning, should they go into the portal? There was players that was going in the portal. All of this stuff was going on. And these are the things that I, I kind of embody and I kept inside, kept all these things balled up, not along with my along with my assistant coaches as well. They did an amazing job, phenomenal job of helping me keep these guys locked in and focused throughout that that turmoil. Um, but the locker room was the gratifying part. It was the reaping the reward that I was speaking about the two weeks leading up to it. Every day I made sure that I, I made sure that I insert this and reiterated to these young men that we're going to win the game. That wasn't the question. We're going to win the game. I was just speaking it to existence so that they know because I believe in those guys. I trust that they'll carry out the assignment that we asked of them and they did it. You know, so being in the locker room and seeing those things that, that was going on, it, it was gratifying. But I had already foreseen this thing happening. Well, I, I can't imagine they could have picked a better person to insert in that situation. And a guy like you who's been there, who's lived it, that the kids are going to listen to. And maybe that's part of the answer to this next question. You know, what was your motivation going back to Louisville in the first place as director of player development? It's a, yeah. it's a role I assume you're going to step back into now, now that your uh, head coaching career is on hold for a little while. Yeah, yeah, I retired from head coaching. You retired? I retired from <laughs> That's what all my friends said. Like, bro, how did you you got hired and you retired already? Yeah, that's part of it. I'm retired as of now. That's that perfect uh, record you want to keep. Oh, yeah, I want to keep that uh, uh, for sure. I'm going to ride off into the sunset for a little bit. Uh, I truly enjoyed it. I didn't truly, truly enjoyed the opportunity of being a part of that. But as far as um, my reason why is, you know, I always my parents always taught and raised me a certain way and raised myself and alongside my siblings. Um, it's not about the things that you do. It's about what you can do for others. You know, people define success in all kinds of different ways. I define it in the things that I can instill in someone else. That is my definition of success. How can I help this other person become the best person, best version of themselves? How can they go out and take some of the things that I've given to them and go out and make this world a better place? That's my way of defining that. And I think overall, me knowing and having the opportunity when I was in school, not having someone such as myself or other guys who uh, who holds this role as a player development. You know, we didn't have this back in the days. We had to figure it out on our own. So now I, I just inject myself amongst these young men. I'm here to give them everything I possibly can each and every day, each and every day. All the resources that I have, I'm going to lay it out for these guys. I'm going to try to put them, try my best to put them in the best position to succeed on and off the football field. That is my reason for doing it. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. We got a few more minutes. I want to touch on your your experience in bowl games as a player. When you were at Louisville, you played in two Liberty Bowls, lost yeah. the first one against Colorado State in 2000, but you followed it up ah. victory. I, I had to get that one out of the way. Ah. The second one, you, you beat BYU in 2000 to finish the season 11-2. and two. That was your last college football game you ever played. Think back to that time. What do you remember most about those experiences and the time you spent with your friends and teammates 
in a unique location at a bowl game? Man, the most memorable days of, of, of my life. You know, uh, the same thing I tell these young men, the, the relationships that you build with these young men now in college are the ones that are, that's going to last forever. Those same memories that we're sitting here talking about now are all my former teammates texting and saying how proud they are, in which we talk all the time anyway. So it's nothing new. Um, but I wouldn't be the person that I am without those individuals. Those are the things that I cherish the most. Having these type guys as friends, as brothers, um, that's riding the same wave with me. They may not be in this building, but they're here. I promise you, they're here. Their spirits are along with me. Anytime I'm talking to these young men, it's just, it would have been the same thing if it was one of my other teammates standing before the team that's talking to them. Um, I cherish and I love each and every moment of it. That's why I'm always begging my former teammates to come back. Any of my former teammates, they're more than welcome in this building, just as I am, you know, because they help build the same, same bridge. They help put all, put their hard hat on, help put those building blocks to help build this building, build this stadium, you know, crafted everything outside this building the same way that I did. You know, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and sit and take all the credit because I didn't do it by myself. You know, those are the things that I truly miss and that I, I cherish the most. That's a, that's such great perspective. Deanne, let me last question for you. How is it different for you going to a bowl game as a coach versus a player? Uh, it's totally different. Uh, More clearly fun, the fun, most different. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, is it, you know, a lot of, I had someone ask me this and I presented it to the kids. Are you afraid? And this was my message I delivered to the guys. I can't sit and talk about the whole thing, but the beginning of it is like, no, I'm not afraid. But what I am afraid of is the, these kids not taking advantage of the opportunity that's been presented in front of them. I did that back in the day. I don't have anything to do with it. I can't have any impact on the game right now. That's the things that I'm afraid of. Those are the things that I feel for these young men. When I was playing, I had the opportunity because I'm playing the game. Now the only thing I can do alongside myself and the other coaches is give these guys the game plan. They have to execute the plays. They have to take advantage of the opportunity that they get in front of them. You know, season the moment. That's the most important part about all of this. Me, my playing days, great, nervous, all of that. Coaching days are like, just say those past two weeks, I didn't have a nervous bone in my body. Um, the only thing that I feared the most for is that these young men not taking full advantage of the opportunity that's in front of them. Wise words, Dan. You get smarter as you get older. Oh, yeah, man. I'm telling you. I hope I continue to get older and older, man. I can give these guys everything I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, we know you got to go. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. Uh, we're lucky to have you on the show. Louisville's very lucky to have you back in the role you're yeah. in. Uh, good luck to you, and uh, we'll see you down the road. I truly appreciate it, fellas. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break and be right back with Lending Tree Bowl President Jerry Silverstein. Stay with us. The forecast for this tax season? It's going to rain refunds. Lots of refunds. File for less and get more with Tax Act, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is the president of the Lending Tree Bowl, Jerry Silverstein. Jerry, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Nick. My pleasure to be here. So bowl season is underway. Your game was one of seven bowl games this past Saturday. It's always a fun day, that first Saturday of bowl season. So tell me, how did everything go for you? 
Uh, went fantastic. Uh, being early uh, in the bowl season allows us to uh, get a lot of things accomplished, but it puts us in a very short block of time to get them done. But it's always a, a great feeling to have it over with. And, uh, you know, it just it went extremely well. Our crowd was great. We uh, had some records broken. We uh, we uh, had a great participation from our community and, and our team showed up and played well. Well, you mentioned records being broken. Pretty Pretty cool uh, event moment in your game. Frank Gore Jr., running back from Southern Miss, goes off for a new bowl record, 329 yards, three touchdowns, most rushing yards in the, in the history of bowl season, uh, dating back over 100 years. Tell me, did the, did the crowd have a sense that they were watching something special as the game went on? Well, I'm not so sure they knew that the record was that close. They knew he had a lot of yards. And um, as it got closer towards the end, the, uh, the announcers kind of made some, some comments about it. So it got him fired up and he had that big long run towards the end and uh, went over that, that yardage and the, everybody was excited. You know, our, our game, we've been in, in operation since 1999 and we also hold another record, Rick, uh, Nick, and that is the uh, highest scoring bowl game ever in bowl history, 125 points. Uh, Marshall, East Carolina, and that was 64 to 61. So two, two NCAA national records, and we're very happy with that. Well, that's, that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, so, so going to the Lending Tree Bowl guarantees uh, some type of excitement. I, I, that's, a, that's a good uh, good tradition to have, I would think, Jerry. It is. Um, we, we have a lot of offense. Uh, these teams that, that, that we're tied up with these conferences uh, produce a lot of offense. So and um, they come out and show it. And, and as everyone knows, these bowl games mean a lot to these players and to these universities. And, and it shows um, they have a great time and they put on a, an excellent game for, for, the, for the public. So, so speaking of that, you know, we talk to executive directors every week on this podcast. And, you know, hospitality uh, is a big component of the bowl game experience. Every community, every bowl organization loves to show off what's what's what the you know, what your community uh, has to offer. So tell me what you do in, 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 in those terms. Give us a sense of the student-athlete hospitality that Southern Miss and Rice received from the Lending Tree Bowl this year. Well, we, we have a, a packed week of uh, activities for the players. Uh, we, we start off, uh, obviously, with them arriving in town and, and being greeted by the press and, and the local uh, people and, and getting them all situated. But the first night we have what's called a game night. And the game night is set up like um, with a professional that comes in and sets it up similar to a family feud type situation or Jeopardy, where they have one team versus another. And he calls different uh, positions up there, whether it's the quarterback or the or coach, you know, or, or someone. So these teams play, play each other. And it was really exciting this year. It came down to the, actually the last question and um, where they adjusted the points, they you know, could pick their points and. And um, it was the, the kids were just running around, just having a great time. And then, you know, we we uh, take the kids to the beach, which was one of a, a new things that we did this year. Um, uh, we have our beaches, our closest ones, about 30 minutes away. And it's always a risk because of the weather. And we haven't done this very often, but we were able to now establish some backup plans. So we took them down there. They were able to visit a fort that was uh, built in 1819 to 1859. And it stood at the Battle of Mobile Bay. And so they learned a little bit of history about the Battle of Mobile Bay and the, the uh, famous immortal words from Admiral Farragut of damn the torpedoes. 
which a lot of people learned in their history lesson uh, as they as they went through elementary and, and middle school. And uh, so they got to put that together with it. They got to shoot the cannons off and, you know, at the fort. They We also have an estuarium down there and an aquarium with the university system of their 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 education. So they, they have a touch tank. So they got to, you know, touch stingrays, dolphin and eels. And, and it was really interesting to see these big linemen put their hands in the water and have to touch something like that that they've never done before. And, you know, lifetime experiences there. Yeah, absolutely. Lifetime experiences. No, no, no doubt about it. And we do a community service project. Um, We we have both teams go to food banks and they bag groceries because we're we're about a week out from Christmas and 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 they bag the uh, Christmas uh, groceries for the, the people who need need help during the Christmas time. And they like doing that a lot. They get a lot of exposure and they do it. And then, you know, our last big event would be our Mardi Gras parade. Mardi Gras was founded in Mobile, Alabama. A lot of people think it was founded in New Orleans. Mardi Gras was founded even before New Orleans was founded as a city. And so we, we line the streets of the city. We have about 40 to 50,000 people that come out for this event. Uh, they have Mardi Gras floats. They throw off beads and candy and moon pies, as they say in our area, and a family fun event. Um, you know, the, some of the uh, university uh, administration, they get to ride, whether it's the president, the athletic director, their families, but just get to experience that. The players are on the street catching beads and never seen something like this. And, and, it, and it's really exciting. And, and, and word gets back and it's picked up very well with, with all of the news outlets and, and around the country and what they do. And after that, you know, we have our street party and our, our pep rallies and Battle of the Bands where we have an entertainment district that we close off a couple of blocks um, where people can just roam the, the streets and be out in the streets and, and enjoy themselves and, and get ready for the game the next day. A lot of activities. Now, we have an executive director on every week, Jerry, and, and, and you're the first one to be a little bit controversial. Do you mean to say that Mobile, Alabama invented Mardi Gras and not New Absolutely. Orleans? It was founded in Mobile, Alabama. All right. We'll first have to time. talk to Mr. Hunley about that one. You can talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the, I believe this was the 24th year that Mobile, Alabama has hosted a bowl game. Um, That's correct. Probably pretty dialed in at this point. But what was what was new about your game this year? Well, this was the second year that we um, used a new stadium. Uh, we Last year, we moved over to the University of South Alabama's campus stadium, which uh, has all the newest technology, the newest uh, scoreboards, the newest jumbotrons. Uh, you know, and everything that's to offer for the press and and for ESPN to cover the game. And it just made things a lot easier, a little bit less stressful for us to having to set up and and not have to worry about things uh, uh, as we did with our other stadium. The other stadium was was a little larger, but uh, it was was time. It's time to move, and and we're very happy with that. Um, it, It flowed very well. The alumni people had a great time. We were able to set up tents. The RV park was there. Uh, having a team that was 90 miles away helped us a lot uh, as far as the fans coming and and uh, and spending time here and and tailgating and you know it just it just was a whole different experience where we used to be and and we very much enjoyed it. Last question for you, Jerry. You know these bowl games are very much community based events. Uh, they do a lot for the community and in return the community uh, really supports the bowl game and is proud to have the game in their community. How does the community of Mobile support the Lending Tree Bowl? Well, fortunately, we've had a lot of sponsors who've been with us from day one, 24 years. 
And that means a lot to us. And it means a lot that we're doing something right because there's a lot of opportunities to spend their money and other things in our city and uh, to stay on with us and, and, and be major sponsors of, of what we do. Uh, being able to attract national sponsors like Lending Tree and our past sponsors to, to the product that we put on the field and are able to, to give them to, to showcase their company and, and to make it worthwhile for them to have a title sponsorship with us. It, it all blends together and, and, and our community supports us. And, and we're very fortunate that way. And uh, like you said, we were formed in 1999 and we were, this is our 24th year. And um, we're very, very happy to have the longevity that we've had. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we've, we've taken enough of your time. You, you were going nonstop up, uh, up to and through your game on Saturday. I'm sure you'd be rather uh, taking a little vacation today. But appreciate you taking a few minutes and, and, and chatting with us. And uh, looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very much, Nick. We're going to take a short break and be right back with the co-founder and CEO of Open Doors, Blake Lawrence. Stay with us. Bowl season is finally here. And with Bowl Season Radio, you'll be able to keep up with all the action. Bowl Season is teaming up with First Team Ventures to provide live national radio play-by-play coverage for 18 college bowl games this season. Bowl Season Radio will give college fans the opportunity to stay dialed in to college football's postseason, whether they are driving cross-country or staying close to home. Celebrate college football and listen to Bowl Season Radio on select stations, satellite radio, or off the Game Day Live homepage at bowlseason.com. We now welcome to the show the co-founder and CEO of Open Doors, Blake Lawrence. Blake, thanks for joining us. Nick, thanks for having me. Blake, there's so much change going on in the world of intercollegiate athletics right now. It's hard to keep track. More more at one time than I can ever remember. We're seeing conference realignment, massive new television contracts for those conferences, CFP expansion, the transfer portal, uh, and seemingly right in the middle of it is is NIL. Student athletes have a newfound ability to capitalize and monetize their name, image, and likeness. You are an expert on this subject, the expert as far as I'm concerned. Tell us the state of NIL in college athletics today. Well, name, image, and likeness has become a leading factor in the student-athlete decision-making process, whether they're a prospective student-athlete deciding where to go to school or they're in the portal deciding where to transfer uh, or thinking about going to the portal because they don't know if they want to stay where they're at. I mean, this is a leading factor in this. No, there are other factors that have always impacted the student-athlete's decisions uh, You know, on where they want to go to school, and everyone that's listening knows that. That's the facilities, the coaches, the programs, the history, the education, the proximity, and all of the things I just listed, coaches have a hard time changing overnight, right? You can't change your facilities overnight, can't change your program history overnight, can't change proximity or education standards, but you can change NIL overnight. And the NCAA's new guidelines have given schools a lot more um, uh, clarity in how they can help student athletes in their market maximize their NIL opportunities, and many schools are doing so. So this, this world of NIL is a billion dollar a year market that didn't exist a year and a half ago. Uh, and it's growing every day and it's having a significant impact on how athletic directors rule their, their programs and, and how they hire their coaches and how coaches put together their uh, staff and how their staff puts together recruiting classes and keep their recruiting classes together. So this is now part of the game and there are winners and losers in every game. And um, some of those that have won big in NIL are winning big on, on the field. So, it's uh, going to be fun to see how it continues to grow. 
Now, your company, Open Doors, helps connect companies with these athletes so that these deals can happen. How do you get? How did you get started in this? And what does your uh, platform do specifically? And how does it work? Well, I think anyone that's listening that you know cares about college sports. Uh, and knows NIL knows that there's a lot of NIL companies that have popped up overnight. Um, Open Doors is not one of those companies that has just popped up overnight. Open Doors, we just celebrated our 10 year anniversary. So we started in, in November of 2012, uh, really to help one athlete understand, build, and monetize their name, image, and likeness. So we call it brand, right? The understand, build, and monetize your brand. Um, a decade ago. And we worked in professional sports for a decade, helping professional athletes use an app, not just their agent, but use an app to make money through NIL, like autographs, appearances, social posts, um, you know, different initiatives like that. But another thing that those listening need to understand, like not why somebody is involved in NIL matters and why we got involved in this is my career. Um, you know, at Nebraska, I started in 2007, uh, went to Nebraska, played football as a linebacker at Nebraska, started at linebacker 2008, 2009 as a starting linebacker, the number one defense in the country, the endemic and Sioux era. Uh, and then in October of 2009, I was told I should never play football again. And I hung up the cleats. I, I suffered four concussions in a, a little over a year. And um, my, my career was done in a day. So I know all too well that the time that these athletes have in the spotlight, whether it's pre-NIL, post-NIL, no matter what, this is a limited window. And it's really important that athletes have every opportunity they can to capture that value that they create when they're in the small window of the spotlight. Um, and so that's why we started this company, is that we saw so many of our teammates and friends and uh, across the country that thought they were going to play in the NFL and um, never got a chance, or they got a chance and didn't last very long. And then they're on to the next phase of their life. So we're, that's that's why we started. Um, and we've been doing it for a decade. And this NIL movement has really transformed the amount of athletes we can help on a daily basis. It's been roughly 18 months now since college athletes have been able to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness. Yet there's still much that is unknown about it. And it seems like everyone has an indifferent, different interpretation of how it should work. Is NIL uh, in the college space out of control? And do you think it needs to be managed or regulated better? Every industry needs a leader. And NIL, I believe that Open Doors, our company, it is our duty to be the leader in this space. Not, not necessarily an aspirational goal, but we have, um, by some accounts, I've been been thrust into this position. And absolutely, we will take it and run with it. And what when you talk about control of NIL, um, any subset of nil that is out of control is really due to lack of of consistent information factual information who's actually getting paid what to do what from who right and how much are they getting paid all those things and so open doors like we're in this position where we're trying to help the industry understand here's how much athletes are actually getting paid here's what they're expecting to earn and the control will come from somebody stepping up and leading the industry providing insights and guidance um, to make it more comfortable because this is inevitable this is nil is not going away in fact it's only going to get accelerated in terms of its impact on college sports so out of control becomes 
controlled when you have somebody step up and say, here's what matters. Here's the information that you need to make decisions. And that's a, a role that Open Doors looks to play. And ideally, the NCA would play this role. But because of litigation challenges and uh, other issues, they're not really able to. Uh, so somebody has to step up and lead. And um, we're, we're thankful for the opportunity to be in that position. Educate us about these collectives that are popping up on all these campuses across the country. What what are they and how should they work in an ideal world? Yeah, so a, a collective is a uh, a business entity that is established for the purpose of creating NIL opportunities for student athletes at a specific university, right? So um, a collective like Division Street in Oregon is started by Phil Knight and some other executives within the Nike family. And Division Street is tasked with finding ways that Oregon student-athletes from women's volleyball to men's basketball, uh, women's basketball, football can get paid opportunities on a consistent basis for compliant NIL activities. So Oregon student-athletes go and um, make appearances at at local business events, and they'll get paid $1,000 to $5,000 to $10,000 for their time, uh, and that's a compliant activity. And so then the next week, they might post on Instagram about a new shoe that's that's been dropped uh, and then released by Nike. And, you know, that's a compliant and activity to be paid to post that that thing. So these collectives exist to funnel and create compliant, consistent activities for student athletes on their campus. Now, the when you hear collectives brought up quite a bit, that's because some of these collectives are machines. I mean, they are they are transactions. They're, they're spending millions of dollars a month on compliant NIL activities. They're creating that mesh opportunity. And then in other markets, they're they're struggling to get $100,000 uh, in annual commitments and compensation. And so it really is a, uh, a winner and loser market on the collective side, too, is that if you're in a market where you have an established, legitimate, credible collective that understands their business and can drive um, opportunities, your student-athletes are going to out-earn student-athletes on other campuses that don't have that. And it's a race to see who can establish the biggest, most consistent, compliant collective in the country. And that's why you hear about it so much. Interesting. Last question for you. This is the question I'm most personally invested in in hearing your response. Um, Do you think NIL can be used to benefit events like bowl games in the future and how? I believe within the next five years, bowl games will be the second largest source of NIL compensation for collegiate football players at the FBS level. Bowl games. Bowl games are a a natural element of the collegiate football ecosystem. It's also a world where student athletes since the history of bowl games have been tasked with attending uh, these little pseudo marketing events that are put on by the bowl sponsor, the bowl hosting committee, where they're making appearances and signing autographs. And they're, they're unbeknownst to them providing promotional assets to a lot of people that are around that game. So there's a built in network of opportunities for NIL. Uh, Now the question, which is an interesting one is Where's where's the money going to come from? Okay, and I'll, I'll stay here in a comfortable place, and and hopefully the, the audience will understand this. Is that there's either the pie has to get bigger. So if you are 
operating a bowl, you have to find ways to have your sponsors spend on bowl sponsorship and NIL, right? Or you have to find ways for other, like growing the pie. Or we have to think about the other sources of expenses and revenue for a bowl. And one of the largest expenses for a bowl game may be the rights fee that they're compensating a conference for the rights to um, you know, put on that game. Well, what if those rights fees went away? What what if the the bowl game themselves, instead of having to compensate uh, a conference for the rights to uh, the game, what if they had all of those dollars or a portion of those dollars back, so they have a surplus in their budget, they could then the bowl game themselves could allocate it towards compensating those athletes for uh, participating in promotions and support of the game. Um, Highly complex, gonna, and hopefully it comes. I'm going to expand. I'm going to extend this this conversation a little bit, Blake. Yeah, it's interesting. Do. How about a combination of the two? You know, it seems to me that conferences are feeling some pressure, especially with all those big TV contracts, to find ways to put more money in the hands of the student athletes, especially the ones who are earning it, right? Who who's who have the most value, um, mm-hmm. for, and from a market you know dictated uh, uh, situation, um. So what if it's part of the payout to the conferences now goes to the players? Uh, but in addition, I got to think that any sponsorship that a bowl game does, if all of a sudden now, um, when you've never been able to do it before, you can include elements of promotion uh, uh, by the student athlete themselves. So it's all kind of a, a different, different. So, it's, so it's a, so the, the, the bowl sponsorship becomes more valuable and the student athlete sharing that. But then the conferences give up a share of their their payout and maybe even solves a problem for them in finding a way to get money in the hands of the student athlete without really upsetting the apple cart. Does that, does that make yeah, sense? Do you see yeah, that? Happening? Yeah, absolutely. I think this solves a lot of problems for a lot of people and creates opportunity for an industry that's essential to college sports, which is the bowl season, the bowl industry. And, you know, the the uh, forward thinking Bowls have already invested in NIL, right? This is, you know, from the Independence Bowl, Pinstripe Bowl, LA Bowl, Duke's Mayo Bowl, Holiday Bowl, Music City Bowl, Alamo Bowl. These are examples of of bowls that we've worked with at Open Doors to help create compliant uh, NIL activities to promote the bowls and drive tune into um, the games themselves on social media and other different types of activities. So bowls are already finding ways to include student athletes in NIL, but it comes down to how well they, they have sold their sponsors or how much they've allocated their tune in budget to NIL activities. So it's, it's a yes. And opportunity where the dollars come from, from NIL will evolve over time. And those that are forward thinking leaders on the conference side must understand that bulls are a, a very clear opportunity for NIL at a high level with a trusted partner in an established industry, which is very different than the emotions that leaders in college athletics feel about collectives. So if you had to choose between a bowl committee being tasked with creating an ecosystem of highly compliant and valuable NIL activities. So you, you choose between a bowl committee or a collective. It is likely the bowl committee is more prepared to distribute a large sum of NIL compensation than a collective. And so I look to see this be a trend in the next five years, that bowls will become a significant 
funding source for NIL compensation for student athletes if the rules stay the way they are. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think some people are afraid of NIL. I think in the bowl space, as you said, the four the people that are more forward thinking, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. I think we really need to get more kids really that, that want to play bowl games are are viewed by everybody. They want to play in the game. I mean, a lot of folks are worried about are the stars of football going to show up to bowl games if they're if the compensation package is tied to making appearances the week of the bowl, like they're going to be in town, they might as well play the game. Those are things that are going to help save some of these things that are becoming more of a challenge for bowl leaders out there. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Blake, thanks so much for your insight. Thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, December's a busy month for all of us. I know we'll be in, in some of the same place at the same time. So I look forward to seeing you on the road. Th- thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. And thanks to all of you for listening to this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.